You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of the Fifth Gospel from the Akashic Record, a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner. This is Lecture 5, given in Oslo on the 6th of October, 1913. Yesterday we turned our attention to the period in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, from about his twelfth year to his late twenties. You will certainly have realized from what I was able to tell you that this period brought much that was of profound significance, not only for the soul of Jesus of Nazareth, but for the whole of human evolution. Your study of spiritual science will have shown that everything in the evolution of humanity is interconnected, and that an event of such importance in the life of a human soul, so deeply bound up with the destiny of the human race, is also important for the whole of evolution. Our studies are helping us to see the significance of the Golgotha event for human evolution from many different points of view. This particular course of lectures is intended to present the aspect we can gain by looking at the life of Christ Jesus. And so, having turned our minds yesterday to the period between his twelfth and his his twelfth year and his baptism by John, we will turn once again to the soul of Jesus of Nazareth and consider what lived in this soul after the significant events that led up to his 28th or 29th year. We may perhaps begin to get a feeling for this from the description of a scene which took place when Jesus of Nazareth was in his late twenties. It concerns a talk between Jesus of Nazareth and his mother, the woman who had been his mother for many years since the two families had become one. A deep and intimate understanding had developed between Jesus and this mother, far closer than his relationship to the other members of the family who lived in the Nazareth Nazareth house. Jesus himself would have understood them, but they did not quite know what to make of him. Even in earlier years, he and his mother had discussed many of the impressions that had gradually taken shape in him. At the period in his life of which we are speaking, a memorable talk took place which lets us see very deeply into his soul. The experiences we spoke of yesterday had changed Jesus of Nazareth. Infinite wisdom now came to expression in his very countenance. But, as is always the case, though generally to a lesser degree, it had brought him inner sadness. The first fruit of his wisdom, the penetrating insight he was able to have into people around him, brought him deep sorrow, and whenever he had a quiet hour, his thoughts turned more and more to something quite specific, to the great inner change, the revolution that came in his twelfth year when the Zarathustra eye passed into his own soul. He realized that in the early years following that event he had been aware only of the immense riches of this Zarathustra soul within him. In his late twenties he did not yet know that he was the reincarnated Zarathustra, but he did know there had been a tremendous change in his inner life. Now he often felt, quote, Ah, how different was my life before that change! Close quote. Thinking back to those times, he remembered the infinite warmth of heart that had been his. As a boy, he had been inwardly quite detached from the world. He had been keenly sensitive to everything that speaks to human beings from the world of nature. But he took little interest in anything taught in school. It would be quite wrong to think that up to his twelfth year 
before Zarathustra entered into his soul, this Jesus child had been particularly gifted or clever in the conversational sense, but he was uncommonly gentle and mild, capable of infinite love, with a deep, sensitive inwardness. He had real understanding for all that is human, but no interest at all in the knowledge amassed through the centuries. It seemed as if at that moment, in the temple at Jerusalem, all this had rushed out of his soul and all wisdom had streamed in to replace it. Now he was often mindful of how, before his twelfth year, his connection with the deeper spirit of the universe had been very different, as if his soul had been opened to the depths of infinite space. His thoughts would go back to what his life had been like since his twelfth year, when he found himself able, in a way, to assimilate Hebrew learning, though this seemed to well up quite spontaneously in his soul. He would recall how he had been deeply shaken to discover that the Bath coal could no longer inspire people the way it did before. Then in his travels all the different nuances of pagan knowledge and religious life had become known to him. He remembered how, between his eighteenth and twenty-fourth years, he had been in contact with the external achievements of humanity, and how in his twenty-fourth year he had joined the Essene community and studied their secret doctrine and the people who dedicated their lives to it. His thoughts would often turn to those years, but he also knew that it was only the store of knowledge people had accumulated from ancient times that had arisen in his soul, treasures of human wisdom, human culture, and moral achievements. He felt that from his twelfth year he had lived in all that was human on earth. Now, however, he often recalled the time before he reached his twelfth year, when he felt as if united with the divine grounds of existence, when everything in him was pristine, spontaneous, welling up from a warm and loving heart, that united him closely with others. Now he felt lonely and isolated and had fallen into silence. All these feelings led to a particular conversation between Jesus of Nazareth and the individual who was a mother to him. She loved him deeply and she had often spoken to him of the beauty and greatness of all the gifts that had shown themselves in him from his twelfth year. The relationship between him and his stepmother had become progressively closer, more noble and beautiful. But even to her he had never spoken of his inner conflict, and she had seen only what was great and beautiful. She had seen him grow wiser and wiser as he penetrated more and more deeply into the whole of human evolution. Much was new to her, therefore, in this talk, which was a kind of general confession, but she received it with a warm and tender heart. She had a kind of immediate understanding of his sadness, the mood in which he yearned for everything he had been before his twelfth year. And so she tried to comfort him by speaking of all the noble and splendid gifts of which he had given evidence since then. She reminded him of everything she had learned from him about the renewal of the great Jewish doctrines, judgments, and treasures of the law. She spoke of all that had revealed itself through him, but his heart grew heavy as his mother was speaking in this way, prizing so highly what he himself felt he had inwardly grown beyond. Finally he said to her, quote, Be that as it may, but if I or someone else were able to renew all the spiritual treasures of ancient Hebrew wisdom, what would this signify for humanity? All this is in reality meaningless today. If there were still people with ears to hear the wisdom of the ancient prophets, then it would be of value to them if that wisdom could be revived. Yet if Elijah himself were to come today, close quote, so said Jesus of Nazareth, continue quote, and proclaim to present-day humanity the best of what he learned in the realms of heaven, 
there would be no one with ears to hear the wisdom of Elijah, nor of the older prophets of Moses or anyone else, as far back as Abraham. Everything these prophets would have to proclaim would fall on deaf ears today. Their words would be preached to the winds. Everything I have and hold in my soul has therefore become valueless. This was the sense in which Jesus of Nazareth spoke. He also spoke of someone who only recently had been a great teacher, yet his words had made no real impact. For, Jesus said, although good old Hillel could not equal the ancient prophets, he was nevertheless a great and profound teacher. Jesus knew well what good old Hillel had meant to many of the Jewish people, having gained considerable authority as a teacher, even in the difficult times of Herod. His soul had been full of great wisdom, and Jesus knew how little heed had been paid to the heartfelt words Hillel had spoken. Nevertheless, it was said that Hillel had restored the Torah, the oldest codex of Hebrew law, which had been lost to the people. He brought the original Hebrew wisdom back to life. He would also walk through the land like a true teacher of wisdom. Mildness was his main character trait, and he was like a kind of Messiah. All this is narrated in the Talmud and can be confirmed in the ordinary way. People were full of praise for Hillel and had much good to say of him. I can only mention a few things to indicate the mood and vein in which Jesus of Nazareth spoke of Hillel to his mother. Hillel is described as a man of mild and gentle character who achieved tremendous things through this very gentleness and loving-kindness. One story that has been preserved about him shows him to have been preeminently a kind and patient man, ready to meet anyone who came to him. Two men once had a wager on the possibility of rousing Hillel to anger, for it was known that no one could ever make him angry. One of the two men said, quote, I will go to any lengths to make Hillel angry. Close quote. If he achieved this, he would have won the bet. At a time when Hillel was particularly busy, much involved in his preparation for the Sabbath, a time when someone like him really should not be disturbed, the man knocked on his door, and without any politeness or using the proper form of address, Hillel was the president of the highest ecclesiastical court and used to being treated with respect, shouted, quote, Hillel, uh, come to the door, uh, come to the door quickly. Close quote. Hillel put on his coat and came to the door. The man said brusquely, Hillel, I have a question. Hillel replied, What is your question, my son? I want to know why the Babylonians have such narrow heads. Hillel said in the mildest of tones, the Babylonians have narrow heads because their midwives lack in skill. The man went away, thinking to himself that this time Hillel had remained unruffled. A few minutes later, he came back again and called out gruffly, Hillel, come to the door. I have an important question. Hillel put on his coat again, came to the door and said, Well, my son, what is your question? I want to know why the Arabs have such small eyes. Hillel answered mildly, The vastness of the desert makes your eyes small. They get small from looking out on the great desert. Again, Hillel had remained unruffled, and the man was getting concerned about winning his bet. He therefore returned a third time, calling out in a gruff voice, Hillel, come to the door. I have an important question to ask you. Hillel put on his coat, came to the door, and asked as mildly as before, My son, what do you wish to know? I want to know why the Egyptians have such flat feet. Ah, because the ground there is so swampy, answered Hillel, and calmly returned to his work. Some minutes later the man returned and said to Hillel he did not have a question to ask this time, but he had laid a bet that he would make him angry and he did not know how to achieve this. Hillel answered mildly, My son, it is better for you to lose your bet than for Hillel to lose his temper. The legend is told to show how kind and gentle Hillel was with everyone who importuned him. 
such a man, said Jesus of Nazareth to his mother, is in many respects like the prophets of old. Many of his utterances sound like a revival of the ancient wisdom of the prophets. Jesus cited some beautiful things Hillel had said, and then continued, People say Hillel is like an ancient prophet who has come again. I take a special interest in him, because it is dawning on me that there is a special connection between him and myself. It seems to me that the knowledge I have, and everything that lives in me as a great spiritual revelation, does not come from Judaism alone. And that was also true in Hillel's case. He was born a Babylonian and only came to Judaism later. He, too, was of the house of David, connected with it from ancient times, just as Jesus of Nazareth and his kinsmen were. And Jesus went on to say, If I, also a son of the house of David, were to do as Hillel did and utter the sublime revelations that have brought enlightenment to my soul, and are the same sublime revelations as were given to the Hebrews of old, none would have the ears to hear today. Pain had entered deeply into Jesus' heart, because he knew that in times past the Hebrew people had been told the greatest truths in the world, and their bodies had been such that they could understand those revelations. Now times had changed, and so had the bodies of the Hebrew people so that they could no longer understand the revelations of the fathers. As if to sum up everything he had to say on the subject, Jesus told his mother, The revelation of ancient Judaism is no longer suitable for the earth, for the old Jews have passed away. The ancient revelation must be considered worthless on the earth today. Strangely enough, his mother listened calmly to what he had to say about the worthlessness of what she held most sacred. But she loved him tenderly, and in her inmost heart she was able to understand something of what he had to tell her. He then went on to tell her how he had wandered into pagan places of worship and what he had experienced there. Remembrance came to him of how he had fallen to the ground when standing at the pagan altar and how he had heard the bath coal in its altered form. And then something like a memory of the ancient Zarathustrian teachings came back to him. He did not yet know with certainty that he bore the Zarathustra soul in him, but the old Zarathustrian wisdom, the old Zarathustra impulse, rose up within him during the talk. Together with his mother, he experienced the reality of this mighty impulse, all the beauty and glory of the ancient sun wisdom rose up in him. And he remembered, When I lay by the pagan altar, I heard something like a revelation. The words of the altered Bath Kol came to him. I spoke them for you yesterday. And he repeated them to his mother, quote, Amen. The evils hold sway. Witness of egoity releasing itself. Selfhood guilt through others incurred, experienced in the daily bread, wherein the will of the heavens does not rule, because man separated himself from your realm and forgot your names, you fathers in the heavens. All the greatness of the Mithras worship came before his soul with these words, rising as though from an inner genius. He spoke at length to his mother about the grandeur and glory of the old paganism, about how the separate ancient mysteries of Asia Minor and Southern Europe had merged in the Mithras cult. Yet he also had a dreadful inner feeling of how that ancient religion had gradually changed and fallen prey to the demonic powers he himself had experienced in his twenty-fourth year. Everything he had experienced at the time came back to him. It appeared that the ancient Zarathustra wisdom, too, was something to which people of his own time were no longer receptive. For the second time he said significant words to his mother, quote, Even if all the old mysteries were revived, and with them everything 
that had once been so great in the pagan mysteries, the people no longer exist who could hear it. All those things are of no avail. If I were to go and proclaim to people the changed message of the Bath coal which I heard, if I were to make known the secret as to why people are no longer able to live in communion with the mysteries when in physical life, or if I were to proclaim the ancient sun wisdom of Zarathustra, the people no longer exist who would be able to understand. Today all this would turn into demonic nature in people, for it would resound in them, but they would not have the ears to hear. People are no longer able to hear what was once proclaimed and heard. Jesus of Nazareth now knew that the changed voice of the Bath Kol he had heard call out to him the words, quote, Amen, the evils hold sway, close quote, was ancient sacred teaching. One all-powerful prayer had been said in all the mystery places, but it had since been forgotten. He now knew that something of the ancient mystery wisdom had been given to him when he had been out of his body at the pagan altar. Yet he also realized, and said so to his mother, that it was not possible for people of his time to gain understanding of those mysteries. Continuing the talk with his mother, he spoke of the things he had learned among the Essenes. He spoke of the beauty, greatness, and glory of their doctrine, and remembered their gentleness and sweet temper. For the third time he spoke significant words, which had come to him when he conversed with the Buddha in his vision. Quote, it is not possible for all people to be Essenes. Hillel was right when he said, close quote, quote again, do not cut yourself off from the community, but work and be active in the community with love for your fellow human beings, for what indeed are you all on your own? Close quote. That is what the Essenes do, however. They cut themselves off, this is a continuing quote, withdrawing from the world to live a life of holiness, and this brings misfortune on others, for the rest of humanity must suffer if they go apart. Close quote. He then told his mother the event he had witnessed. I spoke of this yesterday. Quote, Once I left the Essenes after an important personal conversation, and when I reached the main gate I saw Lucifer and Araman running away. Since then, dear mother, I know that the Essenes protect themselves from them with their lifestyle and their secret doctrine, and Lucifer and Araman have to flee from their gates. But by sending Lucifer and Araman away, the Essenes are making them go to other people. They gain blessedness by saving themselves from Lucifer and Araman. Having lived among the Essenes, Jesus knew that there was a way of reaching the heights where we unite with the divine and spiritual. But it could only be done by individuals and at the cost of others. He now he knew now that the connection with the world of the divine and the spirit could not be established in the Hebrew, the pagan, or the Essene way. These words entered into his mother's loving heart with tremendous power. Throughout the talk, he had been at one with her as though they were one. The whole soul and the whole capital I of Jesus of Nazareth lay in those words. Let me speak of a secret connected with the talk Jesus had with his mother before the baptism by John. Something passed from Jesus to his mother. Not only did he wrest all these things from his soul in words, but having been so close to her from his twelfth year, his whole essential nature passed to her with his words, and he was now in a condition as if beyond himself, as if his I had been lost to him. His mother, on the other hand, had a new capital I, which had descended into her, as it were. She had become a different person. If we study this and try to find out what happened, a strange fact emerges. The dreadful pain and suffering that was wrested from the soul of Jesus poured into his mother's soul, and she felt at one with him. Jesus himself 
felt that everything that had lived in him from his twelfth year had gone from him in the course of this talk. The more he spoke of it, the more was his mother filled with all the wisdom that lived in him. All the events that had lived in him from his twelfth year now came to life in his mother's loving heart. For him, however, they seemed to have vanished. He had put into his mother's soul, into her heart, everything he had been living with from his twelfth year. This caused his mother's soul to change. Jesus, too, was a changed person after that talk, so much so that his brothers or stepbrothers and other relatives began to think he had lost his mind. What a pity, they would say. He knew such a lot. True, he did not say much, but now he has completely lost his senses. He was given up as hopeless, and he did indeed walk about the house for days as if in a dream. The Zarathustra eye was in the process of leaving the body of Jesus of Nazareth and entering into the world of the Spirit. This eye came to a last resolution. As if driven from inside, from inner necessity, he left the house after a few days, moving mechanically, and made his way to John the Baptist, whom he knew, to ask to be baptized. There followed the event I have frequently described as the baptism by John in the Jordan. The Christ Spirit descended into his body. Those then were the events. Jesus now bore the Christ Spirit in him. Since the talk with his mother, the Zarathustra eye had gone, and the other eye, which had been his up to his twelfth year, was present again. Only it had grown and become even greater. Into this body, which now only held the infinite depths of heart and mind, a feeling of being open to infinite spaces, came the Christ. Jesus now had the Christ in him. His mother also had a new eye, which had entered into her. She was a new person. The scientist of the Spirit perceives the following. At the moment when the baptism took place in the Jordan, the mother too experienced, experienced something like the end of a transformation process. She felt she was in her forty-fifth or forty-sixth year at the time. As if the soul of the mother of the Jesus child, who had received the Zarathustra spirit in his twelfth year, the mother who had since died, now entered into her. The Christ spirit had come to Jesus of Nazareth, and the spirit of the other mother, who was then in the world of the spirit, had come to the stepmother with whom Jesus had the talk. From then on she felt herself to be like the young mother who had borne the Jesus child of Luke's gospel. Let us get the true picture of this infinitely significant event. Let us try to feel it deeply, and also realize that a unique spirit had come to live on earth, the Christ spirit in a human body, a spirit that had never yet lived in a human body, but had been in the realms of the spirit. It had never yet lived on earth and knew only the worlds of the spirit. It only knew as much of the earth world as had been stored up, as it were, in the three bodies, physical body, ether body, and astral body, of Jesus of Nazareth. The Christ Spirit entered into the three bodies which had developed through thirty years of life in the way I have described. His first encounters with life on earth were free from all previous experience. Initially, the Christ Spirit was guided to a place of solitude. This too can be known from the Akashic record of the fifth gospel. Jesus of Nazareth, into whose body the Christ Spirit had entered, had given up everything that had previously connected him with the rest of the world. The Christ Spirit had just arrived on earth. Initially this Christ Spirit felt drawn to impressions gained in the body that had remained in memory, as it were, and been most strongly imprinted in the astral body. It was 
as though the Christ spirit said to itself, Yes, here is the body that has seen Araman and Lucifer flee, has felt how the Essenes, seeking to advance themselves, compelled Araman and Lucifer to go to other people. The Christ felt drawn to Araman and Lucifer. Knowing them to be the spiritual entities humanity had to contend with on earth. In the first place, therefore, the Christ Spirit, dwelling for the first time in an earthly human body, felt drawn to do battle with Lucifer and Araman in the desert solitude. I believe the temptation scene I am going to describe to you is entirely correct. It is, however, extremely difficult to read these things in the Akashic record. Let me therefore state explicitly that some aspects may need to be slightly modified where further occult investigations are made. But the essence is there, and this is what I am going to tell you. The temptation of Christ is narrated in other Gospels, but in different aspects. I have often referred to this. I have made every effort to perceive the temptation seen as it truly was and will tell you what really happened in a way that is as unbiased as possible. First of all, the Christ Spirit in the body of Jesus encountered Lucifer in the wilderness. Lucifer, with all his power and influence, who offers temptation to human beings when they think too highly of themselves, lacking in self-knowledge and humility. Lucifer will always seek to play on our false pride, arrogance, and self-importance. He came to Christ Jesus and said more or less the words that are also written in the other Gospels. Look at me. The other realms in which man's life has been set were established by the other gods and spirits. They are old. I am going to establish a new realm. I have released myself from the world order. I shall give you everything the old realms have to offer by way of beauty and magnificence if you will enter into my realm. But you must leave behind those other gods and recognize me. Lucifer spoke of all the beauty and glory of the Luciferic world. Anything that must touch a chord in the human soul that had even the least bit of arrogance and pride. But the Christ Spirit had come from the worlds of the Spirit and knew the soul's attitude to the gods that preserved it from being led into temptation. In the world from which it had come, the Christ Spirit had known nothing of Luciferic temptation, but it knew how to serve the gods and was strong enough to reject Lucifer. Lucifer then made his second attack, but this time he had called on Araman to support him, and the two of them now spoke to the Christ. Lucifer sought to rouse his pride, Araman to address his fear. One of them therefore said, Because of my spirituality and everything I am able to give to you, recognize me and you will not need what now you do need, being a Christ who has entered into a human body. This physical body makes you subject to itself, and you have to recognize the law of gravity when in it. It prevents you from going beyond the law of gravity, but I shall raise you above the laws of gravity. If you recognize me, I shall cancel out the effects of the fall, and nothing shall happen to you. Throw yourself down from the parapet. It is written, I shall command the angels to protect you, lest your foot strike a stone. Araman, wishing to play on this fear, said, I shall protect you from fear. Throw yourself down. Both of them beset him. But it was just because there were two of them, and they held each other in balance, that he was able to save himself from them and he found the strength human beings must find on earth if they are to rise above Lucifer and Araman. Araman then said, Lucifer, you are no good to me. You are in my way. You have not increased but reduced my powers. 
I am going to tempt him on my own. He sent Lucifer away and made the final attack on his own, saying the words we know from the Gospel of Matthew. If you claim to have divine powers, make the mineral element into bread, or, as it says in the Gospel, turn the stones into bread. Then the Christ Spirit said to Araman, People do not live by bread alone, but by the truths that come from the worlds of the Spirit. The Christ Spirit knew this very well indeed, having just descended from those worlds. Araman's reply was, You may be right, but the fact that you are right, and the extent to which you are right, cannot prevent my having a certain hold on you. You only know how the Spirit acts that descends from the heights. You have not yet been in the human world. Down there you find people who truly need to turn stones into bread. They cannot possibly live by the Spirit alone. Arman was speaking of things that could be known on earth, but not by a God who had only just come to earth. A god would not know that down on earth it is necessary to turn mineral substance, metals, into money to provide bread for the people. Araman said that those poor people down on earth were forced to feed themselves by using money. This was the point where Araman still had power. And he said, I am going to use it. This is the true account of the temptation of the Christ. Something was left unresolved. Lucifer's questions had been answered, but not those of Araman. To solve these, something else was needed. When Christ Jesus left the desert solitude, he felt that he had grown beyond everything he had lived through and learned from his twelfth year. He felt the Christ Spirit to be connected with what had lived in him before his twelfth year, and no longer felt any connection with everything that had grown old and withered in human evolution. Even the language spoken by those around him had become a matter of indifference to him, and to begin with he kept silent. He wandered about in the area around Nazareth, and gradually went further and further afield, going to many of the places he had visited as Jesus of Nazareth. And something very strange emerged. Please note, I am telling you the story of the fifth gospel, and it would be pointless for anyone to look straight away for contradictions between this and the other four gospels. I am telling the story of the fifth gospel. Generally silent, as if he had nothing in common with the world around him. Christ Jesus went from one lodging to the next, always working for people and with people. Araman's words about bread had touched him to the quick and left a deep impression. Everywhere he found people who had known him when he had worked for them before. They would recognize him again, and among them he did indeed find those to whom Araman must of necessity have access, for they needed to turn stones, mineral substance, which is to say money, metal, into bread. He had no need to visit people who followed the moral teaching of Hillel and others. He went to the people who in the other Gospels are called publicans and sinners, for they were caught up in the necessity of turning stones into bread. He would often be among these people. Something strange had happened, however. Many of these people had known him before he reached his thirtieth year, for he had been with them once if not two or three times as Jesus of Nazareth. They had come to appreciate his mild, gentle, and wise nature, for the great pain and profound suffering he had gone through from his twelfth year had ultimately been transformed into the magical power of love, a love that flowed from his every word, as if there were a mysterious power which poured out over the people around him. Wherever he went, in every house, every lodging, he had been deeply loved, and this love had remained when he had left their homes and gone on his way. People would often speak of dear Jesus of Nazareth, 
who had passed through those homes and those towns and villages, and something would happen, as if a cosmic law were in operation. I am speaking of scenes that happened over and over again and come up frequently when clairvoyant research is done. The families for whom Jesus of Nazareth had worked liked to sit and talk after work when the sun had gone down, and it was as if Jesus was still among them. They would talk of the dear man who had been with them, speaking of his love and gentleness and the wonderfully warm feeling they gained when he was under their roof. And it would happen, as an after-effect of the love that had come from him, that as they sat together, having talked for hours of the man who had been to visit them, that the image of Jesus of Nazareth would enter the room, as if in a vision shared by the whole family. He visited them in the spirit, or we may also say they created a spiritual image of him. You can imagine how they had felt when he came to them in such a common vision, and what it meant to them when he now returned after the baptism in the Jordan. They recognized his outer form again, but the light in his eyes had grown stronger. They saw the transfigured countenance that had once looked at them with such kindness. They saw the whole person who had been sitting among them in the Spirit. You can imagine the extraordinary thing that happened among those families of publicans and sinners, people who, because of their karma, were surrounded and plagued by all the demonic spirits of that age, people who were sick, heavily burdened and beset. You can imagine how they felt on his return. Now the changed nature of Jesus was apparent. It was particularly through people like these, that one could see what had become of Jesus of Nazareth when the Christ Spirit had come to dwell in him. Where, in the past, they had merely been comforted by his presence, they now felt he had healed them. They went to fetch their neighbors, who were equally oppressed and plagued by demonic powers, and brought them to Christ Jesus. Thus it happened that among the people who were under Ahriman's rule, Christ Jesus, having vanquished Lucifer, with only a sting remaining from the encounter with Ahriman, was able to do what the Bible describes as driving out demons and healing the sick. Many of the demons he had seen when he lay like one dead on the pagan altar would depart from human beings who came face to face with Christ Jesus. The demons saw him as their opponent just as much as Lucifer and Armon did. As he went through the countryside and saw how the demons behaved in human souls, he would often recall the occasion when he had lain by the ancient altar of sacrifice where the gods had gone and demons had taken their place and where he could not perform the rites. He had to remember the Bath coal who had spoken the ancient mystery prayer. And again and again the middle line of the prayer would come to mind, experienced in the daily bread. Now he could see that the people among whom he went had to turn stones into bread. He could see that there were many among them who had to live by bread alone. And the words of the ancient pagan prayer, experienced in the daily bread, entered deep into his soul. He experienced the whole process of man assuming a body in the physical world. He could feel that because of this necessity, human evolution had reached a point where because of their physical embodiment, people would forget the names of the fathers in the heavens, the names of the spirits of the upper hierarchies. And he felt that now human beings were no longer able to hear the voices of the old prophets and the message of the Zarathustra wisdom. He realized that life and the daily bread had separated humanity from the heavens and must inevitably drive them to egotism and to Araman. As he went about with these thoughts in his mind, it happened that those who were most deeply aware of the change in Jesus of Nazareth 
became his disciples and followed him. He would take along one individual or another from his various lodgings, people who followed him because they had that awareness to the highest degree. Soon a band of disciples had gathered. Jesus thus had people around him whose basic inner mood was an entirely new one, as it were. Through him they had become different from the people of whom he had to say to his mother that they could no longer hear the old revelations. There dawned in him a God's earthly experience. I have to tell not how the gods prepared a path that led from the spirit down to the earth, but how human beings can find their way again from the earth to the spirit. The voice of the Bath Kol came to mind again, and he knew that the ancient formulations and prayers needed to be given a new form. He knew that man now had to find the way that led from below upward to worlds of the Spirit, and that he would be able to look for the Divine Spirit with the help of this new prayer. Jesus therefore took the last line of the ancient prayer, You you fathers in the heavens, and changed it into a form that was right for people of the new era, for it should no longer refer to a multitude of spirits in the hierarchies, but to one spiritual entity only, our Father in heaven. And he changed the line he had heard as the last but one in the mystery prayer, and forgot your names, making it right for the people of the new era. Hallowed be your name. He changed the third line from the end to show how people should feel who needed to rise up from below to approach the Godhead, so that, quote, because man separated himself from your kingdom, close quote, became your kingdom come. And he changed the line, quote, wherein the will of the heavens does not rule into your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That was the only way in which human beings could hear it now, for no one could hear the words in their old order anymore. The path to the worlds of spirit had to be completely reversed. The mystery of the bread, of incarnation in a physical body, the mystery of everything that the sting of Araman had fully revealed to him, he changed in such a way that human beings might feel that the physical world too comes from the world of the spirit, even if people do not realize this immediately. The line of the daily bread thus became Give us today our daily bread. And he changed the words, quote, selfhood guilt through others incurred, close quote, into forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. The second line in the ancient prayer from the mysteries, quote, witness of egoity releasing itself, close quote, became but deliver us. And the first line, quote, the evils hold sway, was changed to from evil. Amen. The prayer which Christendom knows as the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer, came into being when the changed voice of the Bath Kol, which Jesus had once heard, was transformed by Christ Jesus and taught by Him as the prayer of the new mysteries, the new Our Father. The words of the Sermon on the Mount and other things which Christ Jesus taught His disciples came into being in the same way, and much can still be said on the subject. Christ Jesus influenced his disciples in a remarkable way. Parenthesis, please keep in mind as I tell you these things that I am simply telling you what can be read in the fifth gospel. Close parenthesis. As he went about in those days, he influenced those around him in a peculiar way. He and the disciples formed a community that is true, but he was the Christ Spirit, and it seemed that it was present not only in body. As he went about the country with his disciples, one or the other of them would sometimes feel as though the Christ were in him, in his own soul, when he was also walking beside him, and he would begin to say words which really only Christ Jesus himself could speak. And so this group of people went about and met others and they would talk to them. 
and it was not always Christ Jesus himself who spoke, but sometimes one of the disciples, for he held everything in common with his disciples, even his wisdom. I have to confess I was enormously surprised when I realized that in the conversation with the Sadducee, which is related in the Gospel of Mark, Christ Jesus did not speak from the body of Jesus, but from that of a disciple. It was, of course, the Christ who was speaking. Another common phenomenon was that when Christ Jesus left the group, he would occasionally separate from them, he would still be among them. He would either be walking with them in spirit while he was far away, or he might be with them only in his etheric body. His ether body was among them, going about with them, and it was not always possible to say if he had his physical body with him, as one may put it, or if it was only the ether body which appeared. This was the way in which Christ Jesus was with the disciples and all kinds of ordinary people. His own experience was something I have already mentioned briefly. Initially the Christ Spirit was relatively independent of the living body of Jesus of Nazareth, but as time went on, it had to adapt to it more and more. As life progressed, it was increasingly bound to the body of Jesus of Nazareth, and in the final year it caused the Christ Spirit immense pain to be bound to this body, which had also grown frail. Yet it could still happen that the Christ who by then was going about with a large group of people would leave his body. Now one of the apostles would speak and then another, and it was possible to think that the individual who spoke was Christ Jesus, or also that he was not. The Christ spoke through them all when they were in this close communion. It is possible to listen in on a conversation between the Pharisees and scribes, where they said to one another, quote, To set an example for the people, it would of course be enough to take and kill any one member of the group, but it might easily be the wrong person, for they all speak in the same way. This will not serve. Therefore, for then, the real Christ Jesus may still be there. We have to have the right one. Close quote. Only the disciples individuals who were close to him, could say which he was, and of course they would not tell the enemy. By then, however, Ahriman had gained in power with regard to the question which had remained open, being something that Christ could not deal with in the worlds of spirit, but only on earth. A most dreadful deed had to be done, so that he might learn what it means to turn stones into bread, or which means the same, turn money into bread. Araman made use of Judas of Karioth. The influence of the Christ was such that there was no way of finding out by means of mind or spirit which member of the group of disciples who venerated him was the Christ. For where the spirit was active, even if only a last remnant of its convincing power remained, it was impossible to get at the Christ. It could only be done if an individual used a means with which the Christ was not familiar and which he would only get to know through the most dreadful deed on earth done by Judas. There was no other way of identifying Christ Jesus but to find someone who would put himself at the service of Araman someone who really and truly came to betray him for the sake of money alone. The connection between Christ Jesus and Judas existed because something had happened during the temptation which is understandable in a God. Having just come down to earth, the Christ did not know that the words, quote, it does not need stones to have bread, close quote, apply only in heaven. Araman had retained this as his sting, and therefore the betrayal took place. After this the Christ still had to come under the dominion of the Lord of Death, and Araman is the Lord of Death. This then is the connection between the temptation and the mystery of Golgotha 
with Judas's betrayal. Much more could be told of the fifth gospel, but I am sure the rest will emerge as humanity continues to evolve. My aim has been essentially to show you the nature of it by means of isolated incidents. Now at the conclusion of these lectures, I recall that at the end of the first lecture I said it was a necessity of the times to speak now of the fifth gospel. I would ask you, please, to treat everything it has been possible to say with the right reverence. We have more than enough enemies already, and they have their own peculiar methods. I do not wish to speak on this point. You have probably read about it in the news sheet. You also know the strange fact that for some time now certain people have been saying that everything I teach is infected with all kinds of bigoted Christian dogma and even Jesuitism. This kind of malicious slander, without conscience, comes largely from some adherents of Adyar Theosophy, as it is called. What is worse, there is one source where people have been particularly vocal about the bigoted, perverted, and despicable nature of our teaching, and have also abysmally falsified it. A man coming from the United States spent weeks and months getting to know our teaching, writing it down, and then publishing it in a watered-down form as a Rosicrucian theosophy, which he had copied from us. He does say he learned a lot from us here, but states that he was only afterward called to the masters and learned more from them. He did not make it clear that he had learned the deeper things from our lecture courses, which had not been published at the time. This has happened in the United States. Now we might be as meek and mild about it as Hillel was, even when faced with the fact that this is having repercussions in Europe. The people who were most openly against us had a translation into German done, and it said in the introduction to the translation that a Rosicrucian approach had also developed in Europe, but in a bigoted, Jesuit way, and that it could only thrive in the pure air of California. Well, you can imagine the rest. This is the method used by our opponents. We may look at these things leniently, and indeed with compassion, but we must not close our eyes to them. Seeing that such things happen, people who have shown such remarkable lenience over the years to those who acted without conscience should also beware. Perhaps their eyes will be opened one day. I really do not wish to speak about these things, but it is necessary for the sake of truth. All these things must be seen very clearly. On one hand we have people spreading such things about, but this does not preserve us from others joining the fray who are somewhat more honest in finding these things unpalatable. I won't bother you with all the silly things the two parties managed to write between them, for there is no need to pay attention to the peculiar literature now appearing in Germany, written by Freimark, Schalk, Mach, and others, because the standard is extremely poor. But there are people who have a special problem with anything of the nature of this fifth gospel. Perhaps hatred was never more honest than in the criticisms that were raised as soon as the mystery of the two Jesus children became publicly known. True anthroposophists will approach this fifth gospel, presented in good faith, in the right way. Take it home, talk about it in your local groups, but also tell people how to approach it. Make sure it is not irreverently cast before people who may actually ridicule it. With things of this nature, based on clairvoyant research, that our age does need, we are in confrontation with the whole present age and above all the academic circles who set the tone today. We have tried to be mindful of this. Those who were present when we laid the foundation stone for our building in Dornach will know that we tried to be aware of the urgent need for spiritual teachings to be proclaimed with faithful adherence to the truth. We tried to be aware how far 
our present civilization is removed from the search for the truth. We may say that the times are crying out for the Spirit, but that people are too arrogant or narrow-minded to search for the true Spirit with a real will. The degree of truthfulness which is essential if we are to perceive what the Spirit has to say needs to be taught and developed. Such truthfulness is not to be found in the educated world today, and what is worse, people do not realize that it is lacking. Make sure that everything given here as the fifth gospel is treated with reverence in your groups. We ask for this not from egotism, but for a completely different reason, for the spirit of truth must live in us and the spirit must stand before us in truth. People talk of the spirit today, but even as they do so, they have no idea of its true nature. Someone who has been much acclaimed for always speaking of the Spirit is Rudolf Eucken. He is always talking about the Spirit, but if you read his books, you should try doing so. He always says, the Spirit exists. We must experience it. We must commune with the Spirit and be mindful of it, and so on, in endless phrases running through every one of those books, Spirit, Spirit, Spirit. People talk like that because they are too lazy or arrogant to go to the actual sources of the Spirit, and they are greatly respected. Nevertheless, it will be difficult for us to make headway in the world with the truths gained in such a concrete form from the Spirit as had to be done in describing the fifth gospel. It needs a sober approach and inner truthfulness. One of Eucken's most recent publications is on whether we can still be Christians. Page follows page, like the sections of a tapeworm follow one another, soul and spirit, spirit and soul, going on for volume after volume. Fame and glory can be gained by telling people that one knows something about the spirit. For the readers do not notice all the inner untruthfulness, though one would think it was time they finally learned to read. On one page, we read the statement, quote, Humanity has progressed beyond belief in demons today, and you can no longer ask people to believe in them. Close quote. Yet there is another passage in the same book where we read the strange words, quote, Contact between the divine and human worlds engenders demonic powers. Close quote. So here we have a man who makes the above statement on one page and then in all seriousness refers to demons. Surely this is the most profound untruthfulness. I never noticed any of our contemporaries being alive to this, however. Serving the truth of the Spirit, we are in opposition to the people of our age today. It is important to remember this, so that we may clearly see what we need to do in our hearts if we want to take part in proclaiming the Spirit, in supporting the new life of the Spirit that is essential for mankind. How can we hope for much of a response to spiritual teaching that seeks to guide the human soul to the Christ Spirit when contemporary thought is satisfied with the kind of truths told by all those clever philosophers and theologians that Christianity existed before Christ? They will show that the ritual and certain typical narratives were current in the East in earlier times. Our clever theologians will explain to all who wish to hear that Christianity is nothing but a continuation of what had gone before. These publications command great respect, really tremendous respect among our contemporaries, who have no idea of the real situation. If we speak of the Christ Spirit descending to earth, and later discover that the Christ Spirit was worshipped in rites that were also used to worship the pagan gods of old. And if such discoveries are used to deny the Christ Spirit altogether, which is what is happening today, the logic behind this is of a kind that may be demonstrated as follows. Somebody or other goes into a lodging house and leaves his clothes behind. People know them to be his clothes. 
Later on, someone like Schiller or Goethe, for instance, comes to the house and circumstances make it necessary for him to put on those clothes and leave the house in them. Someone may see Goethe walk about in those clothes and say, What are you talking about? In what way is he supposed to be special? I have carefully examined those clothes. They belong to so-and-so, who is nothing special at all. Because the Christ Spirit made use of the garments, so to speak, of ancient rites, those clever people failed to realize that the Christ Spirit merely put on those garments and that the Christ Spirit has entered into those old rites. Look through whole libraries and countless works written on the basis of a biased modern science. Evidence is produced of the Christ Spirit's garments. What is more, it is correct. People with that kind of nose for cultural evolution are held in high regard today. Their discoveries are taken for profound wisdom. This is a picture we must keep in mind if we want to receive the fifth gospel, not only into our minds but also into our hearts. It is meant to help us so that we are alive to how and where we stand with our truth in the world today. Realizing how impossible it is to make the new tidings, which must come, comprehensible to the thought life of the past. And so, as we take leave of one another, the words of the fifth gospel may be spoken. No progress can be made in the coming phase of spiritual evolution if humanity continues in its present way of thinking. This must change and take a new direction. People who like to compromise and are unwilling to form a clear picture of things as they are and as they have to be in future will not be able to contribute much to the spiritual teachings and dedication humanity needs. I have been obliged to speak of the fifth gospel, which is sacred to me, and I take leave of your hearts and souls with the wish that the bond already created between us in many other ways may have been strengthened through this spiritual investigation of the fifth gospel, which is so dear to my heart. Your hearts may perhaps be warmed by the thought that even if we are physically separated in space and time, we shall nevertheless be together, and together develop a feeling for the inner work to be done and for what the Spirit demands of human souls in the present time. I think this is the best kind of farewell I can make, especially at the end of this particular course of lectures, the end of Lecture 5.